Welcome to Between the Vines. Um, I'm Kevin Martin, and this is Jennifer Phillips Russo. We are two members of the Lake Erie Regional Grape Program, uh, and as you know, we are we are the typical two to join you on the podcast. But um, the, the, Andy Musa is with us some weeks as well, just not this week, and uh, that is because today we are going to talk about liming your soil and a couple of other topics around liming such as uh, you know we're going to touch briefly on on what liming affects which is not just directly related to lime so uh, this is one of the most important production practices in our region for grape growing not necessarily the most expensive so it's not something that i am too involved in in terms of trying to help growers find figure out a way to do it because most growers can afford to do it um, but liming your soil is one of those very important production practices and doing it correctly and accurately is sort of one of our keys to profitability uh, because it really isn't that expensive and some of the benefits are pretty dramatic. And with the specifics on what those, what those benefits are, uh, Jennifer Phillips Russo. Thanks, Kevin. Sure. Yeah, I've received a lot of questions in regards to the cost of fertilizers, the cost of all the inputs that are going into this year, especially into our operations are so much higher. What can they dial back on? And a lot of the times it's, can I dial back on nitrogen, on my fertilizers, to which I think we may have touched base on this in a previous podcast. Um, it's not something that we completely recommend, but if you have a really high organic matter, then this might be a year that you could dial back a little bit on your nitrogen inputs. So going along with that, one of the most important things that you can do, and thank you for saying that, is lime. Bring your, we tend to have acidic soils in our region. For the most part, our soils are acidic. And when being acidic, we had had a podcast with Dr. Terry Bates where we talked about what uh, CEC or cation exchange capacity is. And please feel free to visit our website and listen to that podcast. There's a lot of great information in there. So basically what that is, is your soil's ability to kind of hold on to nutrients and at different pH levels, it either holds on tighter to some and releases other and vice versa. So the optimum pH, in order for you to have those nutrients that are available to you in your soil attached to those cation exchange capacity sites, you want your pH to be between 5.5 and 6.5 for grapes. So... I recently wrote an article, it hasn't come out yet. I've done it in the past as well. There should be some online, but to bring this to recent and correspond with our podcast and what's going on, I wrote another one that even has the table in there that shows you the nutrients that are most important to our plants, to our grapevines during the growing season and at what pHs that they are most available. And you can see in that particular diagram that it is between 5.5 and 6.5 where you're going to get the biggest bang out of your soil for pH wise, for having those nutrients available to the grapevine. Do you have any questions up till there? Yeah, so um, I don't know if it's a question or I mean, maybe a discussion, but but 5.5 to 6.5 is, is actually a fairly big range. Um, I mean, obviously it, it's only one number, but as far as the scale of pH in soil goes, there's a big difference there. You're probably looking at, oh, you know, if you were looking at short term, you're looking at a ton or two of lime to get from 
just to get from 5.5 to 6.5, maybe even three, depending on the soil. And then long-term, if you're talking about changing, you know, 12 inches of soil from 5.5 to 6.5, which is all in the acceptable range, you're looking at probably um, six or 10 ton of lime. Uh, so that's, that's a huge difference, right? That's a huge uh, difference, and I don't recommend putting it on that much. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I said long term. I said long term. But, but, you know, the difference is you're in the acceptable range that you quoted, whether you put on 10 ton or zero ton based on those that very hypothetical scenario. Um, obviously, if you put on none ever in this region, you're looking at a pH of somewhere between 4.8 and 5.4 from what I've seen. Yes, I have seen them as low as four six coming in. No, four three. I've seen some four three. Yeah, I, that could be the actual natural soil, but I think we also do things to lower pH too. So I was just going to state that, and I thought that maybe that's where you were trying to lead me to get to. Well, so, so yeah, we might get there, but <laughs> but can we try to define when a p a pH should be? Maybe not specifically five five, but try to narrow that range in specific instances. So the broader audience needs to know that without a soil test, we know somewhere between say five four and six eight is great, and five five and six five is almost everybody. Um, but are there specific scenarios where you would narrow that that range? Where you would narrow that range in regards to like organic. So if I come to you with a very or... specific soil test and say, okay, look, my pH is 5.5, five, um, what should it be based on all these other nutrient levels you're seeing in the soil? Should it be 5.5 five? because that's in the acceptable range or should we look at changing it? Um, if anybody came to me with a 5.5 five pH, I would still recommend putting on a lime application because of our management practices and the natural the natural progression of a soil to become more acidic over time, especially in our area where it's really humid and we do have a lot of moisture that leaches out and it ends up leaching out all of those, those uh, good positive cations that are positively charged tend to leach out more easily with the water and the cycles that go through. And then when we add certain things like nutrients or manure or compost, that tends to also acidify our soil. So some of our management practices alone will acidify over time. So at by five, I'm definitely telling people to put on two tons of lime to get that going. Right. And it doesn't move very quickly. So that's another thing about the lime when you're looking at it is that you want the finer the grain of the lime that you use, the easier it can move down the soil profile. And that's still not, it's not gonna move all the way down. So one thing that can help you with that you want to have some water. The water is going to help wash it down, but cover crops, cover crops that have senesced or died over time and where their roots were have tunneled down into the soil profile. Now those are empty spaces or voids where the root has died, allowing more of that lime to work down into the soil. Just a, just a business note on this. And this is a really weird thing. Um, in Pennsylvania, lime usually comes with a delivery tag, which gives you the information that you need that, is not commonly looked at by growers. Um, so you need to know, so you're buying lime, right? Just like you're buying urea. Um, when you buy urea, obviously they tell you how much nitrogen is in it. Um, in Pennsylvania, they usually tell you how much neutralizing capacity, ENV, is in that lime. In New York, they often don't. In New York, it's not legal to sell lime unless you include that information. Um, so even though, <laughs> 
I don't know why. Did you say it's, it's not legal or not illegal? No, yeah, it's not legal. You cannot okay. sell lime in New York without including that information. But it's commonly sold without including that information. Oh, there's a number. It's 85%. So, so, so the ENV can vary from 75% and even lower, I think, in certain instances. Um, but it can vary from 75% to 110%. So when we recommend a ton of lime, typically speaking, we're actually recommending like 2,200 pounds if it's average lime, but without knowing whose lime you're using and what the grade is it graded is, um, we don't know what um, you don't know what we're recommending. So we're we're recommending based on that ENV being a hundred percent. Yes, exactly. Read the label. I did write that in my article. Right. So if you don't, the other thing is I've never seen, so I've often seen where the label's not included. I've never seen where they won't give it to you if you ask. So just ask for that label and then you'll know. Um, and you probably only have to ask for it once a year unless you're changing where you're going. It seems to be fairly consistent. I don't, I, I don't think that, so I think they only have to test their mine once a year. Um, but what you were speaking about was the fineness, and that's another thing that's included. Um, and, you know, I don't commonly know how much that does vary, but how much it does vary is really important to how long it's going to take. And that's not going to change the amount that you should put on if you're just starting to put on lime, because it doesn't change the ENV value. It just changes what your expectations are. So when you go back a year later and you see that the pH hasn't moved, you're going to want to know what that fineness is before you say, well, I need to put on a, a lot more lime or I don't because I bought some lime that wasn't fine at all. And it's, I just have to wait now. And this is important in our systems and the vineyard systems, because we have gone to a no-till system. If you were tilling it, you could certainly get that lime further, deeper into the soil profile, but it's not something we recommend and not part of our production practices. Yeah. But even then, if it's not fine, it's still right. going to take time so you just need to be aware of of what what it is and i think you know if you're measuring the upper part of the soil profile you're good if once it does react you're going to get a good idea of of how it did even though you're not tilling it in that's a good point that you just mentioned because a lot of people when they take their their soil tests and I did include in my article and it is also on our website during the production practices um, tab resources that you can look for is how to take a soil sample because the first inch of that soil sample is going to be a lot more acidic than what's normally a lot more acidic than what's a little bit below that because of all of the production practices and the fact that when organic matter dies and stuff, it produces acids. So you want to make sure you scrape off any of that organic matter off the top and scrape down a little bit before you take your cookie size sample to make sure you're getting a good representation of where the roots are. Or, or if you lime, it'll actually have a much higher pH, right? If it's just sitting on there. Yeah. <laughs> or, well, I mean, generally like there's, there are certainly growers that lime almost every year. So you're going to see where the top part of the soil has a higher pH. Cause the way that lime's going to work down is it's going to neutralize the soil where it's at and then it works its way down. So until that soil's neutral, it's not going to go down into the profile. Which is one of, if you're going to the timing of spreading your lime, you're going to want to kind of time it with some 
inclement weather that's coming on some rain. Don't put it in a drought where it's just going to sit on the top and blow away. It will have no way of working down into the soil system. Um, I thought was something else I was going to say. Oh, just to go back on your pH, because pH is so incredibly important. And at a lower pH, that's when things like aluminum and magnesium start um, releasing and they become more abundant and more available for the plant. And that's not good because that becomes toxic and the roots won't grow and stretch in that. And that's where you get poor, poor growth. Right. So I would say like reasons why you would want to be closer to six or six, five would be if you had concerns about nitrogen, phosphorus, um, magnesium. magnesium. Yeah. Potassium. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. I, we'd have, do you think you gain a lot of efficiency with potassium above six? I think you'd, you'd be oh, gain a lot of efficiency. Yeah, no. I think, I think if you're primary concerned with potassium, primarily concerned with potassium, you want to aim sort of as close to six as you can. And I think most grape growers, all other things being equal are going to be primarily concerned with potassium. But like you said, you want to watch out for things that you don't normally pay attention to. Like we don't, apply or remove aluminum. So those those levels will vary in the soil. So if you have some extraordinarily high aluminum, you might want to be higher than six. Or if you have some extraordinarily low magnesium, you might want to be higher than 6.0, certainly right. higher than 5.5. So those would be the things that I would pay attention to when trying to dial in what I want my pH to be. I think there's enough enough variables out there that trying to say that there's a range of five, five to six, five is, is perfect for general advice. But, you know, as a grape grower, when you're looking at your soil test, you actually have to pick a number, right? Pick so, six. So, <laughs> so, I actually pick 6.5 knowing that hopefully we can get down to a six. <laughs> right. Well, well, so the next, I think thing we can talk about is why you wouldn't want to be at seven or why you might not want to be at 6.5. And you know, I think the situation might be high magnesium. Um, you're going to see potassium. You're going to end up having competition between potassium and magnesium. Low, low manganese, which is not, you know, not a huge problem, but I've seen deficiency in leaves. I don't know that it affects anything, but I've seen it occur before seven because manganese efficiency starts to drop off at 6.5. But that's, that's not going to be in all your acreage. That's going to be a weird spot that just happens to have less manganese, right? So the, the, and then the other, I would say the bigger factor is the fineness of your lime and what's going on in your soil. So mm -hmm. if you have a test of 5.5, that pH might be something you don't want to mess with if you know you put on a bunch of lime already and it, maybe it just hasn't reacted and you know that your subsoil pH is higher than what you would expect it to be in a normal vineyard. So that would happen in a recently planted vineyard where you had used tillage to put lime deep in the soil. As you're talking, I'm sorry, I'm sort of zoning, zoning out. I wanna make sure that I had mentioned the, that I said manganese and not magnesium. You did. Okay. So, so I'm like, oh no, did I misspeak right there? Right, so what we'll see in our soils, just to clarify, cause I'm not sure what, context you were concerned about because we talked about both as you raise ph you may run into issues with too much magnesium yes you may run into issues rarely with not enough manganese 
Correct. Too much magnesium can be a real problem. Um, not enough manganese might be. It def, it's certainly, I've seen it make leaves look pretty ugly, but I don't know what it does in terms of practical effect. I don't think it's ever been studied. It's, it's of a lesser concern would be my guess. But yeah, you definitely want to watch your magnesium and make sure it doesn't get too high. So that can happen with a higher pH for a couple of reasons. Oh. So why would that happen with a higher pH? The too much magnesium? Yeah. And we should probably talk about what you could do about it. By Other than lowering pH, which is a possibility if you need to. Which I would not recommend in our soils, maybe in other counties where it's high enough, like where they have limestone based in Niagara County, but not. Most of our soils, and just so we're clear about this, I get all the soil set tests that come in, people asking for recommendations. Most of them are below 5.5. Five. There are some that are not, but the majority that come in are below. So when we're talking about liming and being the most important practice, it's kind of broad encompassing that it's for most of the soils in this area. I'm not saying everybody is like that. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those topics that's interesting. And, and I think, you know, the conundrum of every extension agent, right? So all the people who talk about lime and the importance of lime and sort of this this detailed analysis of how much lime do I need, those are the people that are putting on lime, right? Those are the farmers that have used right. lime, have seen results. Maybe they're missing, you know, I'm not saying they're perfect vineyard operators, but that's one issue that they've tackled, right? So those, they're never at 5-4 and they have other issues. And sometimes those issues are pH that's too high. But yeah, you see a lot of people who haven't, a lot of growers who maybe haven't paid attention to lime yet. And then like what you said, there's a lot of tests out there where it comes back below 5.5. Five. And then the recommend, you know, all this nuance sort of just goes out the window, just put on a bunch of lime, right? Yeah. Well, to go back to your recommendation about, or question about a high pH, it does create competition between magnesium and potassium. Right. So if you're at a higher pH and you have a higher magnesium, then I would start to look for potassium deficiencies and possibly apply more potash. Yeah. So if we're looking back three years ago, I was always telling growers, you know, go nuts with that lime and just put on more potassium. Who cares? Right. I mean, you're making your whole soil health issue better. You're raising your CEC. Who cares about an extra 800 pounds of potassium? Well, you know, now we care because now potassium is a thousand dollars a ton or oh. now potash is a thousand dollars a ton. So, you know, now is not a good time to put on extra lime that ne ne necessitates an immediate application of a whole lot of potash. Right. Uh, it's a, it's still a great time to try to get to six or five, five. It's just not a great time to go from four five to six, five as fast as you can. Right. So you want to worry about that magnesium and you know, pay attention to the type of lime you use, because then maybe if you're going to be concerned about magnesium, you won't be because you can get some lime that doesn't have as much magnesium in it. Right. So I know we're going to have this conversation and you're going to fight me a little bit on it, but we should probably just clarify which one is which. So a dolmictic lime, if you're going to apply that has more mag in it. So if you have a high mag, it might be something that you just want to do a calcium carbonate. Yeah. And if you haven't heard that terminology, that's probably, if you put on Lyme, that's what you've used. It's more commonly available and it's less expensive. Um, it also tends to be better at doing what Lyme does. It's typically got a little bit higher of an ENV, um, but 
it's got a bunch of magnesium in it. So if you don't need that magnesium, you've got to pay attention to it. And five years ago, it was really cheap to just offset that with potash. Now I think you want to, you know, if you were ignoring that issue, you want to start paying attention to it and see if it's cheaper for you um, to save yourself that magnesium application or save yourself that potassium application part of it calcium carbonate. by using calcium carbonate lime. Um, but even if you use calcium carbonate, you may not be putting magnesium down, but it's still going to become more available, the right. magnesium. So you're still going to have the issue, right? You want to look at what's in your soil by those soils. Right. Yep. So I hope that answers everybody's questions in regards to Lyme. But if you still have some, please reach out. That's what we're here for. Send us an email, email shoot us a phone call, and yep. we'll get back to you on it. Yeah, and I actually do have a question. I came a little unprepared. Um, I will get a price for high calcium Lyme for, for the group, sort of. Uh, it'll be in the crop update next week, and we'll mention it here. But this the default has been that dolomitic, and that is going up in price just a little bit. Um, not a lot, but the big change in price there is going to be in trucking. So we're up about $10 a ton over the last two years in trucking costs. So you're going to see a pretty big jump in price since because the volume of what Lime takes, most of our growers do get it delivered. Um, it's a pretty inefficient um, kind of thing to try to keep your own truck. Most of our growers find, you know, trying to truck it to themselves, they empty out a truckload pretty quickly. So um, I don't know, maybe you want to revisit trucking it yourself, but trucking is, you know, it's not like trucking, the trucking companies are getting rich. It's just, it's gotten really hard to truck things. So if you're just paying for trucking, it'll be a little more expensive. And that's that. just saying that's, that's mostly the trucking cost. It's not the actual cost of the lime, which was probably $8 20 years ago if you went and picked it up yourself. And now maybe it's 15. So it has doubled in price, but it, it took decades to do it. So, so. Kevin, how would you feel if somebody had said business-wise, and I know we just talked about the dolomitic versus the calcium carbonate lime versus buying potash. Would you agree that if this were a year where you had to dial back because of the cost of everything, focus on your lime and, well, I don't know if you could really focus on organic matter. If you have a higher organic matter for every percent of organic matter, you can equate that to 20 pounds of nitrogen. Okay. So if you had 0.5 organic matter, then I would definitely tell you to not scrimp on your nitrogen amendments. But I mean, if you have 5% organic matter, 4% or 3%, this year might be a year that you could definitely go without applying it. That's not forever. But in for the cost of where things are right now, would you agree? Um, yeah, I mean, sort of. It, only in the sense that you do need to make sure that it's relevant to your convenience and your operation. Um, you're going to need it eventually. <laughs> right. And we're talking about saving, you know, 15 to $20 an acre here. Okay. So if, if you care about that, like if, that, if that's the difference between you and going out and trying to find financing and a loan versus you not, it's probably not worth it to put that nitrogen application on or to reduce the quantity. But if you're going from say a 40 pound rate, which might make sense based on your organic matter, and I'm just totally guessing here, like if you had low organic matter, 
but not really low, like 2%. So you use 40 pounds. Um, if you're trying to save money and you go to 20 pounds, just so you can do 55 pounds next year, like, I don't know. I mean, if the only thing that does is make your checking account have a little more money in it between now and next year, and then you spend it next year anyways, I wouldn't bet on the price of nitrogen going down. So it's not like you're timing your nitrogen purse purchase. I mean, it could, but it could also not go down too, right? I think they're both equally like likely. I don't think the market is in this state where a farmer or me are going to know something that the market doesn't know. So I don't see any reason to, unless there's a thing that is critical, like you just run out of cash flow for some reason. Mm -hmm. um, and there's probably easier things to cut to save that little um you know if if your target is to save twenty dollars an acre there's probably other things you could cut that are less of a headache to cut um but it, that would uh, you know obviously depend on the individual operation like you could right. do a little less renewal work which is probably going to happen because we don't have the labor to do the renewal work and that's going to save you like sixty dollars an acre and then you're going to spend it at next year anyway well, so keep, it, keep the inputs if you're going to save on renewal into the nutrition keep the vines healthy that are there yeah i mean i wouldn't intentionally save on renewal work because i'm too worried about the cost mm. of labor personally but if it you know if you can't get the labor to do it you can't get the labor to do it so what okay. are you going to do right um but you know typically i think the spending that growers do probably should be focused on reducing their capital expenditures um, rather than nitrogen. You can cut nitrogen because it makes sense to cut nitrogen because your viticulturist looks at your soil test and says you don't need that much nitrogen and stop doing that. <laughs> so when it makes sense viticulturally, it's always going to make sense from a, a business standpoint. So you know what's going through my head when we're talking about nitrogen and ways of getting it, right? Come on, you know me, you know what I'm passionate about. <laughs> I have no idea how to get nitrogen. <laughs> you can also do with planting cover crops and planting certain species that are purposely to grab nitrogen from the soil and then senesce and release it back to the plant. So how well does that work if they can just grab it from the soil instead? So it's a... The way that it dies, you can at, look for like a 25% return. Like as the, as it decomposes, you get like 25% of it the first year, 25% the next year. Well, I mean, are, are we talking about legumes here? Yes. Right. So if, if, do those legumes, are they effective at grabbing nitrogen from the air when the... when the There's enough in the soil. When the organic matter is 4% or are they just recycling from the soil? Recycling, but making it more available. Like, so they have yeah. a plant and as it dies and it gets mineralized by the microbes because of your soil health, it's the, the form the plant needs. Yeah. So. so here's where I push back and this is where it's difficult is like, number one, I think you really want to look at cover, cover crops that researchers say create the most biomass. Um, that's going to be my primary goal from a business standpoint. And then I'm going to eliminate the ones that are just silly and hard to manage because some of the ones that create the most biomass are going to interfere with grape production. So we can right. certainly throw those out the window, right? And carry veg, don't do it. Sorry. Right. Exactly. People, right. But not in a vineyard. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so then we move on to the, to the ones that actually most growers have identified as 
for whatever reason, they're the ones they like. So I would not put a legume in a cover crop unless it increased the productivity of the overall production of the cover crop mix. Right. I completely agree. So what that typically means is your seed rate for legumes should be pretty darn low because your your goal is not nitrogen production. Right. Your goal is recycling. And then your goal is also, and this is where we get a little lost with radishes because radishes are great. And I'm not saying you should take radishes out of a cover crop mix, but just be aware that you should be careful with bare ground and radishes because they're good. Radishes are going to recycle nitrogen at the wrong time, right? Like we just know that it's not the right time. And you're going to hurt your ankle if you put way too many. What's that? And you're going to hurt your ankle if you plant way too many. No, actually it hurts less if you plant too many. So it gets expensive and they're little teeny tiny things so that, yeah, you could just walk on the top of it. But if you have high organic matter and you plant, I would say a half to a one pound rate of radish per acre. Um, And that's like one rat, that's less than one radish per square foot, I think. Yeah, they're still going to try to take up that whole square foot if the organic matter is high enough and the moisture is right. They're just going to, they're going to be gigantic. And that's when you'll, you'll break your ankle. I think that is a whole nother podcast. It definitely is. But but it segues into the. Well, let's let's, let's pull it back to lime. So what I would say is we have these cover crop mixes that used to start at $15 an acre. The price right now is a little bit unknown because there's a bunch of people. I don't know if they're crying wolf or if cover crop's going to be $100 an acre and nobody's going to do it. I don't know what's going on, but we're expecting an increase in the cost of seed this year, right? So if your pH is below 5.5, don't plant a cover crop. Don't even bother. Not this year. I agree. Probably ever. Just... I mean, yeah, technically. No, because we're going to get your pH up because you're going to line. Just get your pH up because then it'll grow. And because your pH should probably be, and it's going to depend on the mix, but if your goal was to grow the cover crop, which it isn't, obviously, we're still trying to grow grapes here. Uh, I mean, they can be pretty and exciting and stuff, but directly speaking, they're not going to make you any money. Um, You'd probably want to be at a pH of seven. So at five, five, you're probably already hurting that cover crop. Um, and at five, it, I mean, we can see where it just doesn't even grow. Let's be clear here, though. And I know this is a whole nother conversation and you're trying to bring it back to line. I sure am. But having bare ground is not OK. What do you mean it's not OK? No, it's not OK for soil health and the production moving forward for that particular. Right. But crop. we don't have irrigation. So during particular times of the year, we need bare ground. Either bare ground or low covered mulch. I don't want bare ground. I want whatever cover crop you had laying on it, covering that soil, keeping the moisture content in there and the temperature of the soil down. So bare ground in July in a drought year is always going to outperform if something is growing and competing. Um, so I'm however you get- I want it competing. I'm saying I want it terminated. Ugh. So however you get that ground to make sure that nothing is competing, that's going to be the most essential thing, pretty much from from bloom to ferasion. Yes. During rapid shoot growth, you definitely right. don't want the competition with the vines. And we are currently just right. receiving funding to study that, to give us floor management strategies. I'm sorry. Oh, my, family, I think, my family is coming home and it's going to start getting crazy here. So I apologize for any background noise. No problem. No problem. I think for sure... 
there's especially when we look at the price of Roundup and also the politics around Roundup and other chemicals, we need to come up with solutions to make sure that we can produce grapes without bare ground. Uh, whether it's covered by a mulch or or grass is growing in the row middles, there's going to, there could be a future where in Concord grape production, bare ground is just not sustainable or cost effective. But right now, I don't think we're there yet. And right now, if you try to do cover crops in the summer, it's, I, I wouldn't do it. I would let researchers do it. And if you're the kind of farmer that wants to research, make sure you do it like research, you know, like not 200 acres all at once. Um, okay, and I support that, but my eyes just got really big where you're like, I wouldn't cover crop, which goes against. No, the- no, no. <laughs> I, I, I did, you, I did say in the summer, I wouldn't cover crop. I can't <laughs> emphasize any more than you can that we continue to see more and more growers seeing really positive benefits that were very marginal when they first started cover cropping because it takes a few years to see the impact and also because Roundup used to be really, really cheap. So there were alternatives that were cheap. As we've lost those alternatives that are inexpensive and we've started to see some of the longer term benefits, you know, we've got growers that are cover cropping in August or late July that are never going to stop because they're committed to what they've seen. And I think it's really important to hear about how important cover crops are in other crops and how they say things like, yeah, cover crops are great, but if only we could plant them earlier. And just to recognize that you're in a field where it's super important not to have competition in June and July, but we're in a field where we can establish cover crops earlier much earlier than most forms of agriculture so we can get some real benefits that that they can't have so when you hear about some of the negatives we can avoid a lot of those thank you for redeeming cover crops for me but but i'm still i'm gonna just keep saying it like planting cover crops in the spring that's that's a you know like jumping out of an airplane with a parachute like you better know how to pull the parachute before you do it (laughs) right and there's not many that i would recommend doing So we're going to learn, we're going to learn how to pull the parachute and then you'll be able to do it. (laughs) That's, I mean, that's the goal, right? That is the goal. Right. Um, I think that's all we have for this week. Uh, We did, you know, hopefully we answered all your questions on Lyme and, you know, if we didn't answer all your questions on cover crops or nitrogen or uh, Roundup prices, we weren't trying to, we're just trying to make more questions. So you contact us and we have more topics for future podcasts. So Jen, thanks for joining me and we'll see everybody next week. Have a great week, everyone.